Hey, this is Joe Cohen, and today we'll be mapping polygenic risk scoring on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Joe Cohen. Joe Cohen won the genetic lottery of bad genes. As a kid, he suffered from inflammation, brain fog, fatigue, digestive problems, anxiety, depression, and other issues that were poorly understood in both conventional and alternative medicine. Frustrated by the lack of good information and tools, Joe decided to embark on a learning journey to decode his DNA and track his biomarkers to improve his health. He first founded Self-Hacked, a popular resource for clinicians and biohackers. Based on the success that Joe experienced by analyzing his own genetics and lab tests, he went on to found Self-Decode, the ultimate precision health tool, which has helped over 100,000 people understand how to get healthier from their DNA and labs. Joe has also worked as a health coach for over a thousand clients. His mission is to empower people to take advantage of the precision health revolution and uncover insights from their DNA and biomarkers through cutting edge science and software. Hi, Joe. Welcome back to the 15 Minute Matrix. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you because there are so many misconceptions about genomic testing in the clinical arena today. And I really want to talk about the significance of polygenic risk scoring and where certain factors may be grossly overlooked in the ways that we're actually using various tests in clinics. So, Joe, can you start us out by defining what polygenic risk scoring is? Sure. So polygenic risk scoring is when you take a bunch of variants together. Polygenic means many genes. So it's across many genes. The way that it's used these days in scientific studies, it's usually dealing with thousands of genes because when you have a complex trait like cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, any kind of chronic condition or any kind of complex trait that involves many genes, what they found is that it requires millions of variants. There's an addition of millions of variants that make up these risks. And the way that genetics originally worked was by trying to find the most significant variants and giving a risk based on those. But what polygenic risk scoring is doing is it's taking millions of variants and combining those and creating a total risk. Now, what the genomics field has learned in the past couple of years is that the original approach of just trying to find those very significant variants, it only worked 
for things like ApoE and BRCA, but it didn't really work for anything else. And even ApoE and BRCA, you know, if you don't have it, you could still obviously get breast cancer. And, you know, most people who get breast cancer probably don't even have BRCA. Same thing for Alzheimer's. It increases your risk massively, but you don't need these variants in order to get it. Especially for something like cardiovascular disease is not really an ApoE or a BRCA. And really, there's a many, many variants that you have to kind of add up, millions that you have to add up in order to get a risk score. Yeah, it's so important that we look at this. And one of the things that I see that we're doing all wrong in relation to genomic testing is that people think that a certain SNP is a diagnosis. So they actually think because I have this SNP, this means this about me, not this means that I have this risk. And there are so many practitioners who are supporting that incorrect hypothesis that having a SNP means means you have this particular problem as opposed to A, what you're talking about, that it may be thousands of genes and how they work together because they might cancel each other out or change the risk together, and that we're then treating a SNP. Can you speak into that? Am I the only one seeing that that's happening? (laughs) (laughs) I think we have to look at how that came about, right? I think it started really from things like MTHFR and genetic genie where it's like, okay, you've got these SNPs, and what happens is is you would have like a minor variant, which just means the less common variant in a given population, and somehow that would be associated with being bad. Now, that's completely flawed also. All because a variant is less than 50% in the population, it doesn't mean anything, right? Because it could be a protective variant, it could be a you know, minor variant, but still be good. And even if it's bad, there could be 999,000 good variants in the theoretical world, right? And so one SNP definitely doesn't mean anything. And the way that we kind of came about this is in 2012, we really didn't have that kind of knowledge, that polygenic risk scoring, that technology wasn't around. And, you know, there was these papers published, and we see papers all the time published on individual SNPs. That's how papers were published, and they still are. Many papers are published about individual variants, showing that if you have this variant, you know, it increases the risk here. But the tricky thing about that is we've taken in that research, and we've built models based on that to compare that to the polygenic risk scoring. The problem with looking at individual SNPs is that it's actually not predictive at all. And the reason is because there's so many confounding variables when you have in a given study There's different ethnicities, there's different locations where the study was conducted, and there's also a huge bias where if you just look at millions and millions of data points, you're going to pick up something that could very well be noise, right? And even if it's not noise and you pick it up, it really only explains a very, very small fraction of the overall trait. The reason why scientists are doing these studies is to elucidate on mechanisms on how things are working. Because if you find significant variant that is connected to a gene that is significant, then you can start to put together a larger piece of the picture, right? So if you find a SNP in MTHFR and it's associated with heart disease and you have a whole bunch of other pieces of information like homocysteine is related to heart disease and that's related to heart disease, as a scientist or as a practitioner who's really knowledgeable about something, 
you might be able to build a thesis about how these things are working. And that's kind of how I do it. I build a thesis about my own body, about how these things are working, but they are not predictive in the sense of, will you get heart disease? And so it's very easy to be fooled, especially in the beginning when we did not have the knowledge. It was only in 2018 that we really found out that there's millions of variants for these polygenic traits, these complex disease or conditions. And so early on, there was this focus on single variants and there began to be coursework on a whole bunch of things. And I was bought into, I I bought into it as well, right? I mean, the first version of what I built was built on adding up single variants together. And then I sought out the best experts in the world. And they said, you know, this is not valid, actually. You need to do polygenic risk scoring. Even though I hired very good scientists, it was a niche field of population genomics. Regular genetic scientists didn't know this, actually. And so I would consult with my regular geneticists, and they would be like, yeah, this is valid what we're doing. But these people actually didn't know that in the population genomics world, this was actually not valid. And you know, if they got their PhD a little too early, they wouldn't know. So it's a very, very new field. It's a cutting-edge field. It's a niche field. And it just spread like wildfire, and it's taking on a life of its own where we get a whole bunch of feedback you know, I've got this one variant, I think I'm going to die or what, you know, it's taken a life in its own. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things I'm scribbling down as you're talking, Joe. First of all, like the understanding of the biochemical pathways, right? Like there have to be number of things that the body's in some ways meant to self-correct, right? So we have to think about a few things differently. Risk, versus predictive. Like those are some words you're using that I think are really important to point out. And also how we applied the thinking about genomics to a classical medical model, meaning that we almost were thinking through ologies, right? Like we think about like this means this, X means Y. And what you're bringing forward in this discussion and what poly genetic risk scoring speaks about is that everything actually works together. It's the sum of the parts that actually speak to risk, not prediction, but risk. And it's the sum of the parts that also include epigenetic factors. Exactly. Exactly. So how do we think about polygenic risk scoring in clinical practice? I know you come from this really advanced sort of hacking realm of thinking about your own health, and that's what spurred your passions. How do we think about this clinically so that we can help people and help people get out of this mythological, potentially magical thinking that the root is in the SNP? Yeah, I mean, it's an educational piece, and that's actually why I'm getting more into the educational realm because I'm seeing crazy amounts of misinformation in the space. And given that I'm the CEO of this biotech company that we do this, Polygenic Risk Scoring Self-Decode, I see that if it's not me, who else is going to be educating? And, And by the way, people like you are educating, and that's great, but I feel like there's a deficit of education. But, you know, in terms of how this gets into the clinic, so there's two different kinds of clinics. There's a functional clinic and then there's, you know, the conventional clinic. We're actually trying to get it into conventional medicine. The only thing is that's a very long process because we have this technology that can do polygenic risk scoring for a whole bunch of conditions, hundreds, 
but you have to prove each one that you want to get approved. And there's a whole very lengthy process for that. You have to get a laboratory developed testing status and you got to get FDA approval. It's just a very long process. Now, this is where functional medicine comes in because people in the functional medicine world are kind of doing things on the cutting edge. Ideally, I'm going yeah. <laughs> to <gonna> say ideally, <laughs> ideally, but I think that you know, functional medicine is falling prey to some of these tactics as well. That's just uh, treating a number on a lab. The lab may be more fancy, but we have to bring that deeper thinking that you're teaching, that I'm teaching, to how we're assessing complex risks, but also complex health conditions. That's a great point. And uh, I think you know, genomics is very complex, the body's very complex, and you have to really use a large framework, meaning a broad framework when trying to understand what is going on. You know, there could be many reasons. You have to look at somebody's labs, you got to look at their genetics, you got to look at their lifestyle, their history. And that's why we try to incorporate, uh, we have a lab analyzer, we have a, a tool that, you know, looks at environmental and lifestyle history. But the polygenic piece, I want to get back to that about how to use in the clinic. So the way we do it is we give a score for every individual based on a percentile on the population. For example, it could be the 89th percentile of risk. And for every trait, that can mean a different thing. Even within this polygenic risk scoring, there is differences in quality because it also depends on the underlying study that was done. Basically, there's this study. It's a GWAS study. They will often have these summary statistics. Sometimes these summary statistics are broken. We actually just published that we have this tool that fixes those summary statistics. But in any case, that you start off with this data, this whole data dump that these scientific studies publish, and then we have to ingest it and put it into our models and then look at different ancestries and do a whole bunch of very complex things. But it is based on the original model and the Original model can be of very different quality. It could be good. It could be not so good. And so there is differences within this polygenic risk scoring. And typically, actually, the more serious the disease, the more NIH funding that it gets, the better quality studies that you see. And so for a lot of traits that you know, are not going to get NIH funding, they're not actually that predictive. But again, it could be different for a whole bunch of different conditions, sometimes very accurate, sometimes it's a little less. But in any case, we give a population frequency for where you are in the percentile, and then the practitioner has to look at that when determining the individual's risk. And so if they see something that an individual is at high risk for something, it doesn't mean that they're actually at high risk because they could be doing a whole bunch of things that are lowering the risk. And most chronic disease almost all of it, which is where functional medicine comes in, you could prevent through changing genetic expression. So it's a very useful tool in order to see what is someone's genetic predisposition for this. And then when it comes to getting recommendations, you can look at individual variants. They can shed light on what therapy might be a little better because you know, you're looking at the pathway at that point. So it's not predicting, but it could prioritize the treatments a little better. And so that's how we do it. First of all, every recommendation that we give is going to be on the report and we give it an impact and evidence, but the prioritization can change based on if somebody has a genetic variant. So 
based on this model, you're not going to say, you have this genetic variant, we are going to give you this supplement. It doesn't work like that. You don't give methylfolate because somebody has an MTHFR variant. You say, let us look at what methylfolate does or what problems you have. So let's say for me, I have the MTHFR, I have two of those variants for that main SNP. What are my risks actually? What are my polygenic risks? My polygenic risks in self-decode is I have a lot of mood-related issues. And those are things that I struggled with in the past, and so that makes sense. It means that not only do I have those risks, they are expressing. And one of the things that methylfolate can help with is mood, and it actually helps me quite a lot with my mood by increasing serotonin. I have genes in the dopamine receptor. I have genes that don't create 5-HTP very well with uh, the tryptophan hydroxylase enzyme. So again, these are elucidating certain mechanisms which might be faulty in my system, but the polygenic risk score is you want to look at for the overall genetic predisposition. And then I look at these specific things. And so I can decide based on this, you know, maybe my homocysteine is slightly higher than I'd like it to be. Based on all these factors, let me try out methylfolate. And I found that when I just take regular levels of methylfolate, I don't notice a difference. But if I take five milligrams of it, I actually do notice a difference the functional medicine practitioner should be treating the issue. But for mood, I can tell you there's a hundred different things that are effective on one level or another for mood. Going directly to methylfolate is not going to be the best thing in all cases, right? I mean, right. it could be number 20 that you're looking at. Like going to sleep earlier or <laughs> eating a better breakfast or being in a better work environment, right? Like we, exactly. we overstep those things in favor often, I find clinically, overstep them in favor of the supplement and often a inappropriate dosing of the supplement, whether too low or too high, because we think that's what the research says or that's what's going to make a difference, but that's losing the bioindividuality that I hear you speaking into that polygenic means everything, it, not just what SNPs are there, but how they may be activated or expressed. Exactly, exactly. And so for me with the methylfolate, it's something that, you know, because I've got these variants and because I have this genetic predisposition, because I actually have the issue, and because methylfolate is actually shown to improve mood, you know, that's a recommendation that you want to maybe give to your patient. But is that the first thing? No. There's a lot of things that you need to make sure that your patient is doing first, but it is something that it could move up the ladder a bit because somebody has all these factors that we just spoke about. Yeah, yeah, so well said. And, you know, a really great end of one example of how you were looking at everything and doing different things and then can utilize that information for yourself and even titrate dosing to see what works for you. So, Joe, I know how deep you are in the research, and we'll link to Self Decode and all of your resources in the show notes. If there's anything that you feel that we didn't talk about that you wish that we as clinicians knew about polygenic risk scores that we, again, didn't cover, what would that be? What are we missing or getting wrong or that you just wish we all knew? Yeah, I think just to show how I would use it, what I do is I filter based on risk scores, and that's kind of the default. And so you can actually just 
scan through what are some of these risks and look at what is most relevant to my client and then focus in on those. In terms of other things, this polygenic risk scoring is not really on the market in any practitioner sense or consumer sense, except for what we provided self-decoding. The reason is because it's super, super, super complex. You know, even trying to get it into the conventional medical establishment, there's only one other company that, well, there's two actually that are trying to get it into the medical. So including us as three companies, and we've done research on everywhere that, that are trying to get it into the medical space. There is a lot of things that are involved. It's a huge data engineering problem, like just to be able to analyze it. And by the way, we're, we're the only company that can do it on an industrial scale. So these other companies are just doing, like they're building models for academics, but to do it on industrial scale is a completely different animal, which is why 23andMe doesn't even do it. Their technology is older, so they haven't updated it and it would be very expensive for them to do it. And so I think the takeaway is, I think quality number one in this space is 100 times more important than quantity in the sense that the number of genetic variants are super important, but the quality of the analysis, what I've seen, and I'm, I literally spoke to every company that would talk to me just to see what they were doing and how they did it. And like for me to build what they built, it takes like a month, but it's going to be a massive shift going forward for this whole space. And I think it's very hard for people to comprehend it because they're just looking at these individual variants and they're not really understanding how big of a shift it is. Like when we use these individual variants, the models were almost no better than a coin toss, meaning we actually looked at it. We said, okay, let's take in these variants that are getting significance. We combined them together. We, did, we had a good algorithm. And, and then it was almost slightly better than a coin toss. And then we compared it to the polygenic risk scoring, which did have a significant difference. And so I think it's hard to really you know, convey how important this is, but the whole genomics field is going to change dramatically from this polygenic risk scoring. And in five years, you're going to start seeing these things in practice, in the hospital, doctors are going to be using it. And so I think there is a unique opportunity because the medical establishment does go slow for practitioners to use it now, right, on their patients. And we've only recently released this uh, like a year ago, and we've been refining the model ever since. And it's going to be a massive game changer. Yeah. So my takeaways, Joe, and thank you for the work you're doing is like, we're just on the cutting edge of this change and things have been shifting really quickly in our understanding of the human genome project and what we thought it was going to be and what it's now evolving to be. Our understanding's evolving. My second takeaway is that looking at genomics is about the sum of the parts, not about any one factor. Again, seeing everything as a whole, which includes the SNPs, but the epigenetic factors as well. And my third takeaway is just this difference between risk and prediction. And I think we confuse the two a lot. And I just want to state that that's what I hear you speaking to. So thank you again for the work that you're doing to drive this forward. And I look forward to seeing where it all goes. 
Yeah, the field is moving very quickly and you have to be on top of it. You cannot just be like, okay, I, le- I took this course a couple of years ago or five years ago and that's going to be relevant in 2023, you know? So yeah. I really applaud what you're doing in the educational piece. Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.